0: I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading.
1: Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow, I'll
0: just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club Podcast. I'm your co-host, Hoy, and with me as always is that banded metal man, Jeff Goad.
1: We're only making plans for Rigel.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and this week, we're very honored to have special guest Jimmy Loveday, co-host of the D&D Roundtable Podcast, director of RPGs at MomoCon, a former regional coordinator for the D- the D and D Adventurers League and the social media coordinator for Bald Man Games. Hello, Janie.
2: Hello, it's, it's such an honor to be here, and I'm delighted to talk to you today about some of this, I guess, historic D and D literature.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we put air quotes yep, around the word. Yep. Li- we put air quotes around the word literature too. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, the whole phrase deserved the quotes there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right.
0: So, Ginny, tell us a little bit about um, how you got into gaming. That's your secret origin story, if you will.
2: (laughs) Uh, You know, um, much like most of my nerdy friends, um, we're kind of always into gaming. Uh, Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, growing up, I grew up in rural Tennessee, and um, books were kind of my refuge away from everything that was awful with the world. Mm -hmm. And so, um, natural love of science fiction and fantasy, I always loved board games, and then when I finally moved away, I got to university, and someone's like, hey, we're going to play a game. I was like, yeah. And then they're like, it's D&D. And I was like, I don't know what that is, but all right. <laughs> um, and uh, from then on, it was just like, you know, lifelong addiction.
1: Mm-hmm. And which version of D&D was that?
2: Uh, that was actually third edition. I've played third, 3.5, uh, fourth edition, lots and lots and lots of fifth, and a little bit of second, but not enough to really talk about it other than to say it's probably the closest one to
0: fans okay (laughs) interesting and um before we you invited you on the show were you aware of the concept of appendix n
2: well uh tangentially Mm -hmm. i had never really actually looked through it um and then you actually invited my friend Paige, my co-host on the show before me and she was talking about it i was like oh yeah there is a list of inspirational books that mostly have nothing to do with D mm-hmm.
0: and had you read any of those authors or or was that just like names you'd heard or seen uh, in the past
2: um i had known most of the names i had read some of them i mean who hasn't read a little bit of you know lovecraft and i mean of course tolkien jack mm-hmm. vance but um i have not read most of the books on here
0: mm-hmm. and, and what books did you find particularly uh, influential for your gaming
2: uh well so before I ever played D&D I had actually kind of immersed myself in some of the worlds of D&D unknowingly because um my favorite author growing up was Anne McCaffrey so anything Anne McCaffrey so dragons I hmm, oh, sure, got dragon right Ride into per- dragons <laughs> yeah so after I read all of the dragon la- riders of pern um I requested more dragon books from the library and we set we found dragonlance so um all of those but you know, just pretty much like going through um like Anne McCaffrey has that very distinct style for the the Dragon Riders of Pern and then her science fiction stuff fantasy as well um has kind of a magical feel to it so those definitely kind of influence my world building in that you want to make it something that's very believable but also like enough removed from reality that you know it feels very kind of fantastical as well
0: Mm-hmm. Right, because Dragon Riders of Pern actually is sort of a science fiction story, but it has the, the fantasy elements, right, because they're on a, another planet, right, is my yeah. understanding of that series. Okay.
2: Yeah, they took off to colonize and found this planet, and they were like, it's perfect, and then um, turns out it has this deadly threadfall that kills you if it touches you, but lo and behold, there are dragons, and they can shoot it down.
1: Hey, there that's you helpful. Go. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> you can form your telepathic bond with your very own dragon. Right, right. Which I have to believe that influenced how to train your dragon.
0: Oh, must have, Right, <laughs> right, right. And you're, you become like you go to an academy and learn how to write. Yeah, there you go.
2: Exactly. That's exactly right. Right.
0: Yeah. And um, is there is that a work that you particularly recommend to gamers or is another book that you would say, hey, as a gamer, you should really read this because it would really sort of open up your gaming?
2: As a gamer, I just in- encourage like reading pretty much any fantasy because all of it is just like rich in like story building and all that you can bring into yours because everyone has such a different game style that it's hard to say like what any one person should read. But, um, you know, the, c- the classic science fiction and fantasy authors definitely like um, you know, Anne McCaffrey and um, – whoa, why am I blanking on – 2001 Space Odyssey. Oh, Ar- Arthur, C. Arthur C. Clarke. <laughs> yeah, yep. Arthur yeah. C. Clarke. Yeah, Arthur C. Clarke. And, yeah. And, you know, I mean, there's dozens and dozens of just, like, the the, the classic ones of that. But, I mean, Arthur C. Clarke, I also read everything he wrote, which was uh, an expansive library. Mm-hmm. Um, anything that was, I guess, very popular science fiction in the, the 90s and early 2000s is something I would have read and... I'd recommend it.
1: <laughs> one thing that always cracks me up about Arthur C. Clarke was that he was like totally like living in the Chelsea Hotel in like the '60s and '70s. So it's just like I love this idea of like Arthur C. Clarke like on his typewriter in the Chelsea Hotel while like Patty Smith and Robert Maplethorpe were like downstairs. <laughs> right, and right. like, there's something so cool about that.
0: Right, right.
2: And like, it was kind of weird because he was one of those authors who like actually did a little bit predict the future i mean not really predict but like you know thought about it and some of the things like did come into actuality so much that people were like kind of like how did you know all this man
0: yeah right right but but
2: then of course society diverged from his utopian view of it as as it does (laughs) as
0: as things do (laughs) as things as things inevitably generate to the mean um yeah is there have you revisited any of those authors uh or do you revisit them frequently from from you know you, the, the the authors that you're reading as a child or you know as um, a young adult,
2: I mean yeah. Periodically, I do every I'd say uh, five years five years or so at least. I pick up several books and read them again just to see if they hold up. And um, plans right now with all the the Dragonlance hubbub in the world uh, mm. to pick those up next and reread them to see if um, you know Taz and all of them are as as great as i remember gold moon you know got to get back with the, the crew
0: yeah that's definitely fascinating because it would be interesting to read some of the books that are actually sort of like the second wave of stuff so we have books that influence Dungeons dragons or as you say
2: early Dungeons dragons, dragons novels right, yeah
0: right yeah yeah and see like uh, then it becomes like a, a recursive loop at a certain point right
2: i definitely read some of the old uh, ed greenwood novels recently they they don't they don't hold up <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> okay And this week we're reading uh, Fletcher Pratt's Invaders from Rigel. Um, We wanted to uh, show which copies you have or discuss which copies we're working from.
1: Yeah, sure. So, uh, Ginny, which edition of the book are you working with?
2: Uh, This one smells like it's directly from 1964, which is indeed what it says. And oh, God, I just pulled it apart.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Do you have this cover here? I do. There we go. Perfect. Perfect. So we all three have a matching set.
2: That never happens. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, this this edition here, this 1964 Airmont paperback, has an uncredited uh, piece of art on the cover. And we've got a bunch of green men in front of a rocket ship. I don't know, Jenny, do you think this was art that was actually made to be the cover of this book? Or do you feel like the publishers just grabbed something that looked sci-fi?
2: Uh, absolutely not, because there are no green men or any rocket ship described in this book that looked remotely like this, because uh, they do go quite into detail on the right. descriptions of all machinery. Right, right. <laughs> we, do, we do have
0: a co- cobalt blue man, but no green man. Nah, that's yes, true.
2: yes, it's quite, quite blue.
0: Right. <laughs> so, uh, Jeff, do we have a Hygaxian word of the day from invaders from Rigel? Uh, we do. On page 58, we
1: have the word... Stupefaction stupefaction and stupefaction on page 58. Um, it says as he swung himself over the side, his eye caught the glint of an unfamiliar highlight on the back of his hand. And with the same stupefaction that Murray Lee was contemplating the same phenomenon, several miles away, uh, he perceived that instead of flesh and blood member of flesh and blood member, he had somehow acquired an iron hand. And stupefaction is the state of being temporarily unable to think. So that is our word of the day, stupefaction.
2: Oh, that's not any of the ones I would have chosen, but that's oh. a good one. Please right, well. <laughs>
1: tell us, what are, what are some of the words you might have thought of?
2: So not necessarily uh hygaxian, but words that I didn't know, which is a very uncommon occurrence for me. <laughs> um, uh,
1: what, do, you, do you remember uh, what any of them are? I have a list. Oh, please.
2: Oh, <laughs> yes. Uh, so actually, in the very first sentence of the book, I encountered the word ambit. Oh, and I okay. was like, what in the world is this? And, you know, so obviously looked it up, which I don't have that open right now because I was not prepared. Uh, but an ambit is so in in, in context, um, his sound was swimming and his conscious mind had been beyond its ambit. So ambit would be the bounds or limits of a place or district. Ooh,
1: Ooh that's go. a good one.
2: And then there was panjandrum, um, which was a couple chapters past that. Uh, panjandrum being a person who has or claims to have a great deal of authority or influence. And then I have two more.
0: That's a very high gaxine, by the way. Yeah, too. I feel like oh, you
1: yeah. did a much. I feel like you did a much better job this week than I did. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, fan I it was I did have that one,
1: one. <laughs> that a st- one cracked me up
2: <laughs> it did too it gave me the fan uh, which, which is a state or attack of uneasiness or unreasonableness right. um, yeah. I, I know a lot of people who exist in that state
0: there you go uh, <laughs> edward gory has a uh, pseudo tarot deck called the fan the fan pack
2: and then the final one <laughs> that i had written down was desideratum which is something that is needed or wanted um the, uh, oh gosh, I had the page mark, but I've lost it now. But uh, so integrity was a desideratum. So they were looking for something and he's like, well, the desideratum was this. And I'm like, what? <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, so um, reading through that, and I'm like, yeah, language has certainly evolved. Like, um, you know, these are words that are still very much useful, but um, now we just use a lot more words to say the same thing.
0: <laughs> I, well, I think uh, I think especially Fantod is one that should probably be brought back for the 2020, 2021
2: era. Oh, yeah, there are. Yes, Fantod. T- let's bring back Fantod because there are a lot of people who exist in a, in a continual state of Fantod. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Perfect. And at this point, we can head on over to the library. Ginny, what did you think of Invaders from Rigel?
2: Well, it was... Um, Definitely a science fiction book from the 60s. They had a very large focus on electricity, which is something that's very common in books of that era because electricity was a marvel still to some people.
1: What's interesting is actually Hoy pointed out to me in our patron book club prior to this that this book actually was written in the 30s. It was just the paperback was published in the 60s.
2: Oh, well, that makes even more sense.
1: That's what I thought, too, because I was like, when I was reading it, I'm like, yeah, it's the 60s, but this feels even more like old fashioned than the 60s. Um, so that makes a lot of sense to me, too. This was written in 31, apparently. It was
2: originally published in some magazine, and I didn't have a date on that, so I assumed it was close to when it made novelized right. format.
1: But Surprisingly, was-
2: 30, it was 33 years before that. Right, I mean,
0: that was definitely giving me some cognitive dissonance <laughs> no. on there. I was like, wait, this yeah. doesn't feel, even from 1960, this feels a little, um, a little off. You know? Yeah.
2: So- well, this, this book, um, well, this story, uh, also has like six alternate titles, which made trying to find it.
1: Onslaught <laughs> Ons from, from Rigel, and yeah, yeah. there's some others. Yeah.
2: and and then it just went by the the name of the article in the magazine, Winter something or other. Um, and there were variations on that before it actually got a name.
0: Ah, okay.
2: Yeah. Um. But uh. Yeah. So, I, I mean, honestly, uh, on the version that we have, we all have the tagline on the front really just like science fiction tale of community that had miraculously changed to metal
0: mm-hmm. that is an
2: understatement <laughs> 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 you read that and you're like okay i know what i'm getting myself into no no
1: nope. <laughs> <laughs> no you do not no um yeah so i guess starting with like did you enjoy reading this was this an, was this an enjoyable read or not really
2: actually did enjoy reading it and i think a lot of that was um like if it had been much longer i i might not have but it was all of 127 pages long this is this is barely a book
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: um which makes sense as it was originally a magazine um story
1: although right. the font is super small yeah. Oh, yeah,
2: yeah this is this is also decidedly a a, a book printing from the 60s, in that there are no margins and we're going to shove all of the words on the page. <laughs>
0: right.
1: <laughs> yep. Yep. It's clearly um, a decision that was uh, made from a financial perspective. Right. Exactly. It's like, how could we print this book on as few pages as possible? Right. Right.
0: <laughs> Although, something to be said for that a, a book, a, a paperback that you actually can stick in your pocket. So true. Fair. I yeah. can't. I don't have real pockets. <laughs> sure. That is actually uh, one problem with our, uh, our yes, the ongoing problem, right? So. Yes, yes, uh, with
1: with our gendered clothing design yep. is that we feel like women's pockets should only be decorative.
2: Yeah, and um <laughs> yeah. I mean, this book did um if the 30s makes even more sense on some of the the gendered nuance within it. They definitely mentioned um several prominent female characters um and put them in somewhat of a lesser position than any of the male characters who appointed themselves dictator of New York and so right. on.
1: Right, right. <laughs> yeah, and if, if you argue with that, you're going to get tossed off a bridge. Right. Right.
2: That uh, that actually that that actually is what happened.
1: Yeah, Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, And yeah, so like we're introduced to Gloria Rutherford, and right away we're told that she is anything but good looking. Um, So that's like kind of instantly the context that we have for Gloria. So it's in my mind, it's kind of the narrator saying. You don't need to worry about her too much. She's not that attractive. Like so she's like not that big of a deal. So already it's kind of a gross introduction of Gloria. But what's interesting about Gloria though is like by the end of the book she's actually like the main hero who keeps like saving them and like I actually kind of really surprised me that Fletcher Pratt allowed for her to be the character who was like kind of yeah. kicking ass and taking names. But then when she does kick ass and take names, the guys are like uh what did they say? They said um Oh, I have it written down. Oh, yeah. Let's give a hand to the little girl.
2: Yeah. Yes. Yes, because <laughs> Gloria, as it turns out, ends up being a crack marksman. Yeah. And um, they're being attacked by these strange creatures, so that that becomes, like, the primary skill that's valued. But then they're constantly, like, taking credit for, oh, we've saved the day. <laughs> and I'm like... But did you or did Gloria? <laughs> right,
0: right. You know, and after all that, they get that one thing where, like, you know, when they're on the—I uh, think it's page one twenty-four. When they're on the train and they're getting shuttled around the base, and then um, she has to throw them the key, and then they're like, "Oh, he, she threw underhand, like, as, as uh, near as like what was it said? She swung with that underarm motion, which is the nearest any woman can achieve to a throw." <laughs> like,
1: And not the nearest, that's the nearest any woman. There is literally no woman on the planet capable of throwing overhanded, is what Fletcher Pratt wants us to know.
2: And then um, the other prominent female figure that they have is Martha Lamy, who is supposed to be like a very esteemed dancer, uh, Mm -hmm. ballerina of some sorts. And dancers are very strong. And so when they get turned into mechanical form, she's much stronger than all of them, and they take affront to that and then proceed to entirely ignore it. So then at the end of the book, as they turn back to flesh, they naturally have to say that her figure is all bulgy now and she'll never be able to dance again. And I'm like, that was... Okay, that's like how they close the book. Oh, no, I'm fat now. Right.
0: (laughs) Yep, (laughs) yep. Pretty unnecessary. But interesting, there's two interesting comments in there, right? Because I think Mata uh, Lami. when she leaves with those like idiot banker and um, uh, that industrialist, I, mean, I think that was under false pretenses, right? They told her like, "Oh, we're," you know. She makes us. She has a thought like, "Hey, I've kind of left with these two idiots," and also that, "Hey, you know, we're all robots now. This whole relationship with the sexes is like due for a rethink," you know, because <laughs> right. <laughs> and then, um- well, and then we also learn that the Lassens have
1: abolished gender. And um, in their in their kind of elephant world, all their babies are just made in vats. Like, men and women aren't a thing anymore. So it's also kind of interesting that potentially Fletcher Pratt is kind of, maybe you could interpret him as saying that, like, gender differences is something that, like, societies who are more advanced will eventually overcome.
2: That, that was actually kind of how I interpreted that, too, because, like, that's a, that's actually a, a kind of prolonged conversation that they're having there. It's like, you ask them, you know, like, because the the last ask like you know what do you keep on about the differences and they're like oh it's a it's a sex thing oh we've done away with that entirely and we just produce our 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 young our, our offspring
1: yeah we just make it, them nuts or whatever
2: it was wholly unnecessary and I'm like. Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And there's a lot to unpack in this novel as well. Like on page 108, at one point Sherman, who like suddenly becomes the main character out of nowhere for like half the book, um, says, what right did they have to come to Earth anyway? We were letting them alone. And it's like. Hmm. Could we potentially use that same thinking to ask us um, to ask ourselves about like what right did Americans have to take over North America or any col- colonizing force to take over any other place? It's 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 funny that it, it almost like I can't tell if it is commentary on that or if it's just real oblivious.
2: I'm gonna go for real oblivious because he also definitely has a very English centric world in that like of all the people in the globe to come and try to see, like, what's left of America, which they've stated several times was the very nexus of the world, they send the Australians.
0: Right. Australians and the South Africans are the only other people who are still around, too. And this is, of yeah. course, Who all still
2: conveniently are, are white people. Well, they're now blue. Yeah.
1: Right. But- sure. <laughs> but anybody who was from a... Predominantly, and actually, South South Africa is not a predominantly white country, but a a white controlled country as of that era. Exactly. um, In the southern hemisphere, those are the only ones that survived. Right. Then also, there's on page 124 when Sherman says, "Sorry, this is, uh, but this is a rebellion. You are not familiar with the history of this planet, or you would know that Americans can't be anybody's slaves."
0: Yeah. Right.
2: Oof. And and not all Americans though, because. We we were, yeah, <laughs> they, they, yeah. They, we were, and um, a, a very large percentage of current Americans definitely were. Exactly.
1: <laughs> like, what do you mean Americans can't be slaves? Like, literally, we had millions of American slaves, right. and they are Americans too. Right. Like, it is. It's that was really kind of like a real bat to the head for me. Yeah. There
2: was definitely some 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 racism to unpack in here, and that he just entirely ignored all other races like it's definitely like as you read it like it's very obvious that it's very white centric like all the professions that he holds in esteem are things that he only believes that like white male men could hold and and he has some sort of fascination with naval history
0: (laughs) right he was actually yeah a naval historian so yeah that was that was the key of it but yeah still yeah it's very strange it's very technocratic without being um you know, quite slide rules, you know, and that kind of stuff mm-hmm. like that. But it's but it is a very technocratic mid twentieth century industrial worldview. Also, also, I don't feel like I know any of the characters.
1: Like, not one of them. Like, I don't feel like I understand the interior of any of them. I don't feel like I know what they want.
2: Um, oh, they're very two dimensional.
0: Again, ironically, uh, I think the women actually got more, um, more depth in some ways than any of the male characters. I, at one point, I couldn't tell. Uh, the initial guy murray from ben ruby from any of them right it's like which which one of these guys is nor can i tell
1: them from sherman i feel like the two women and the uh japanese servant were the three that the most stood out but i I don't even think it's because they had personalities i think it's just because like they were just literally different than all the other white dudes
2: who all miraculously knew how to fly airplanes
1: right (laughs) (laughs) well yeah i'm I'm a white guy I, i know how to fly an airplane (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> but, you're, but you, you do we're you, all
1: taught that right away <laughs>
2: you do but you're you're also going to conveniently forget that you you can't do a barrel roll in a helicopter so it evens out the intelligence <laughs> right, level. Right, 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 true, right,
0: true. right right and that's the most qualified pilot there too right? <laughs> yeah. and i like how they all like try to like just like oh we can operate a destroyer it's no problem you know we can. <laughs> and
2: then they just create a rocket ship and they're like, oh yeah, but we're gonna give it wings so like it can glide. And I'm like, but that's not how rockets work.
1: Also, I like that part of the uh, world building of this novel is that these these elephant headed space aliens who can like travel through um, the galaxy have never discovered chemistry. <laughs> Humans are the only ones smart enough to have actually discovered chemistry.
0: Right. Right.
2: Well. I don't what they haven't discovered is that they don't understand the concept of it and therefore they're like well I mean these things these things have these interactions but like what you're calling chemistry we're like we don't understand that's just right. and it, except explosions they didn't understand explosive devices right and until all of a sudden they were like okay we've listened to your thoughts for like two days and we understand intricately how to build and detonate explosives now and I'm like <laughs>
0: Right. i mean i guess it's a, a slight joke on um people you know uh, i mean or or maybe even looking at well we've developed if you get to a certain technology fast enough you might miss all the intervening steps along the way so they seem to have mastered physics very early on this, <laughs> oh, this yeah. race mathematics and higher physics so chemistry is just applied science probably in their mind so then it's kind of a lower thing right yeah um
2: Yeah. they and, don't need to know how to do combustibles because obviously they have like fission like right. at this fission point point, like,
0: and anti-gravity and all this other stuff yeah, So why would why, why, would, why would
2: why would we go with less efficient means of science
0: right and so yeah i think that's a, that's a, uh also kind of not an uncommon viewpoint i remember having some you know uh, uh physics teachers in high school and they kind of looked down on the chemistry department so
2: i found it interesting how they kind of glossed over like that the 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 lessons used these kind of helmets to send these electrical impulses to um kind of uh replicate mind control like these impulses would come into the now mechanized humans and it would just like they would feel this overwhelming need to just do what it told them (laughs) stick your finger in the hole it's going to hurt a lot okay you've experienced that but now you're going to do it again why (laughs) why And so it's just like their their technology is like so advanced while also being like so simple because like they've managed to harness the power of light. Right. Oh, we have we have lasers and it's like the craziest thing in the world. And,
0: like, and I think there's a again a sort of ongoing joke. And actually one of the old the oldest of the elephant men, I forget if he has a name or not, actually sort of like decries that as a failing of their civilization, right? That they've they're sort of ivory tower intellectuals, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. And and so uh, they, they just have never dealt with some of these practicalities. And so they have these robot monkey men doing a lot of their dirty work and these, you know, four-winged sort of super intelligent paradactyls, you know, being their scouts and bombers. So they haven't really bothered to get their hands dirty for a long time.
1: Also, Jenny, have you read the story The Tower of the Elephant by Robert E. Howard? It's a Conan story?
2: No, I, I have not read many of the Conan stories at all.
1: So there's this like great early Conan story and uh, called The Tower of the Elephant, and young Conan climbs this tower and discovers that there's this alien being from the planet Yogg, and he's got this giant elephant's head. And since, um, since Conan takes place in our far history, I like to imagine that the planet Yogg is the The many millennia ago name for Rigel, and like these are the same beings, like a millennia later. Well, so millennia later,
2: Rigel, Rigel was the star that their planet was circling, but they didn't actually come from
0: Rigel. Oh,
2: so it could have been could have been Yog. Yeah, hey,
0: right, right. Even better, I love it. Right, right, and and it's it's implied that their planet, or at least that planet from Rigel that they were circling had, had died out. and that, So they're on a sort of diaspora, too. But, oh, poor Yogg. Yeah, and then they come to these different places and, you know, oh, these lower forms of life. It's only right mute that we should, uh, you know, take it <laughs> over and, you know, make robot apes.
2: Put out this <laughs> magical gas that puts everyone to sleep and then trans transmute your whole body into m- metal.
0: Right, because
2: right. Because machines are obviously the superior form for life. <laughs>
0: Right. Right. I think the only reason they didn't change the pterodactyls is they would have been too heavy to fly, right? So that's the uh Yeah. yeah.
2: Because they were so amazed by the airplanes. How do they right. work?
0: Right.
1: <laughs> they also really had like I feel like the the elephant men, the the lassans, they also I feel like their dungeons were kind of kinky. You know, it's like here, like like looking at page 62, um, after a light after a slight pause, he was bathed in red light then it goes on to he found himself unbound on a floor of rubber like uh, rubber like texture and then they talk about, like, handles dangling from the wall on cords of flexible wire. And then later on, like, he has these, like, satisfying electrical shocks. I'm uh, <laughs> just like, what is happening down here?
2: And then, and then when you misbehave, you get a very much less satisfying electrical shock.
1: <laughs> exactly. You've been a bad boy. Right, right. <laughs>
0: Sherman's misbehaving.
2: The blue light means comply. Right. (laughs) You find that out very quickly.
0: There you go. (laughs) Were there any particular set pieces or scenes that really jumped at you that you really enjoyed in in your reading of this book?
2: I also am a a, a big fan of, you know, planes, trains, boats, and automobiles. And so, like, just, like, watching them kind of go through and figure out the workings of, like, oh, yeah, the the six of us can totally crew this warship. And then, like, (laughs) three men were, like, We built a rocket in a week and I'm like... Walk right. me through walk me through this. Right. And literally, <laughs> literally none of the three yeah. are
0: rocket scientists either. <laughs>
2: now now mind you, they did have the entire power of Australia helping them build this rocket, but I'm gonna assume none of those Australians were rocket engineers either. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and that happens all the time in like these like like very kind of pulpy works too, where it's yeah. like, okay, I've landed on this new planet, I'll spend a few days talking to them and now I know their language.
0: Right, right.
1: And it's like, um, I don't really think that's yeah. how language right.
0: works either. But (laughs) as a final counterpoint to that, though, I liked in the beginning when they're sort of first gathering all the survivors, all these people who've turned to metal, and they decide to sort of relocate themselves in the Rockefeller at Rockefeller University. Right. And then they realize that none of them, because they're all like former upper class people, none of them actually know anything. Right. And so they're having to do all this research and like recreate all these ideas and technology because they're like, oh. I guess we don't really know how to do that, right? Right. This guy's oh, this guy's a mechanic. I guess he's the newest equivalent of a doctor to us cuz our regular doctor won't know anything about these robot bodies, right? And then and, it turns
2: out he has no idea either. Right. And then I like that their first one of their first ideas is we need to let other people know. So let's let's create a signal fire. Let's burn down the opera house. Right. Then <laughs> they were all just like with exuberance, we all agree. And I'm <laughs> right. like Man, it must have been a really bad opera you saw.
1: Well, and what's funny is like I also like did a Google image search. I'm like, it must have been like an ugly building. It, it's stunning. Yeah. But, but Hoy had a theory,
0: uh, and my theory is that uh, this is sort of an, again a New Yorking joke because Fletcher Pratt was sort of this literati circle in the New York, and they probably went to this opera house and felt like it was a total death trap, and that we're going to die any any time they went there. And so like maybe just, it's just
1: like really old and falling apart. Yeah, so like that might have <laughs> been part of the joke or something. Right? I don't know. <laughs> right. Um, but while reading this, did you feel like you could see anything in here that felt like this was proto d d or no?
2: No. <laughs>
1: <laughs> fair, fair. No.
2: Uh, I mean, like, uh, I mean perhaps proto-D&D and, like, the war gaming stuff because there was a lot of discussion on, like, tactics and battle lines mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. strategy for moving our forces forward and then realizing we're vastly overpowered and the Australian government decides that, like, we all of a sudden don't give a crap about you. So <laughs> right. um good luck with that. Uh, so, like, it, it maybe influence on, uh you know, the precursors like uh, Chainmail and such, but sure, sure. definitely none of that... A uh, high fantasy feel that you you know traditionally think of with D anD D. Aside from just like, oh yeah, we believe we can do it, so we do it.
0: Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> well did you think the Lassen space in the Cap Skills was a dungeon or not really a dungeon in a sense? Because you know it's underground. Uh, and- I
2: mean, it kind of is. Except there's like no traditional enemies there. It's all just I mean, mostly environmental, which I guess is kind of Tomb of Horrors esque in that like. Most of the stuff in Tomb of Horrors that gets you isn't monsters. It's it's you being dumb, right? <laughs> so,
1: or the person who wrote the module being a dick,
0: right. <laughs> right? Some combo of the two. Some combo of the two, right? Right.
2: <laughs> a little more of that than the first, perhaps. But, you know, right. Right. but I mean, but yeah, I mean, that was kind of how it was too. Like the 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 dungeon there, it was designed and no reasonable, logical format. You go through, there's these car tracks and there's big domed rooms. And then you go through these series of lecture halls where it just looks like a cinema. And then you find these tiny cells and then just like all of a sudden you're outside. You're like, who right, designed right. this?
1: Right. Well, your, your like, working memory of what it was like being in there is so much clearer than mine is. <laughs> I'm very impressed with that.
2: <laughs> well, I was just reading it Before.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Would there any sort of uh, set pieces again that you might say, hey, you know, I might rework that. It was interesting enough or funny enough or goofy enough that it might be interesting to have throw in one of my games.
2: I mean, I did kind of like how they took like the entirely unremarkable cat skills and like they were like, yep, we don't really know how they've hollowed the whole thing out, but it seems that they have. And so, you know, you just take this really unremarkable, Mountain range and wherever it is, and and everybody's like, "Oh, it's a dwarven stronghold," but it's not.
0: Right.
2: It's um, it's elves. Well, elves don't know how to dig; they just did. It's fine.
0: These elves do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, these elves do. (laughs) Right. right. Um, and you like maybe the structure of having sort of um, it's kind of icky to say like race, but sort of sort of like sort of sort of like villainous race, but with some subservient. Uh, you know, servitor races or servitor, you know, beings. Is th- that something? I, I
2: think there's honestly enough of that already in D&D with, like, the, yeah. many, the many different um cultures that enslave people. So, like, mm-hmm. the the Drow and the Underdark and the Thayans with their legions of undead servants. And it's just, like, a, a very common trope already that there's all this slavery that exists that, honestly, like, that's something that we kind of need to just get away from because... Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, workers that want to work do better work, anyways. Right,
0: right. Even even in evil empires, you know, it's e-
2: especially in evil empires. Right. That's, how, yeah, you, that's, that's how the empire failed every time.
0: Right. <laughs> they didn't. They didn't unionize their orcs, and so that's a you know a bit of problem. Um. Did you think the 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 Lassins would be um are too goofy, or do you think they might actually make an interesting sort of adversary? Um. If they were sort of maybe, uh, punched I, I up a little.
2: They were an interesting adversary because, like, their ability um, to just, like, absorb knowledge and take it in, like, so quickly. Um, you know, they had the little caps on them, and they were just listening to their thoughts, and, like, they gathered so much from that. Like, the guy showed them a gun once, and then all of a sudden they had their birds dropping incendiary bombs. Mm-hmm. So, like, just their ability to, to think on their feet and to recognize a real threat was um, definitely made them a very valid enemy. And then they made these whole... Armored tanks, which were shaped like fish, which I really didn't understand.
0: Right, <laughs> <laughs> fish on a, a fish on a slab. And, and yeah, they, with, yeah, with
1: with elephant uh, with elephant proboscis. Yeah, yeah, and they Lazers. were
2: you know n- you know n- nigh impenetrable for the longest until they realized that like lead encased bullets could take these bad boys down, and then like these light beams. So like they were a very formidable enemy, mm-hmm. and I think you know had they had. um more time to kind of absorb the, uh, I guess, tactics that the enemy was using against them. Um, like if they'd done more test fires of the gravity beam before they shot down their thing, they probably would have latched on to that idea, and mm. it would have been a very different ending.
0: Actually, that brings up a set sort of interesting thoughts. So, as you, as a dungeon master, oftentimes we'll we will create, uh, you know, the scenarios, and we'll have we'll have set up our, our, you know, the the challenges and the adversaries. Do you feel it's fair, for example, to have the your, your adversaries sort of evolve and change in response to what the players are doing, or do you kind of want to keep them the way that they were written? Um, oh, no, ab-
2: absolutely, yeah. you change yeah. them, otherwise, it becomes a very boring game for your players if they get more and more creative and the enemies are just the same. Then they're like, sure. okay, well, they're overcome now, what you know? So, you definitely want to be like constantly changing them, and definitely, um. I know I, I, for instance, like if my players are like, oh, God, I hope they don't do this. And I'm like, I hadn't thought of that. That's a good one. Yeah, we're going to add that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right, right. Oh, yeah.
1: All the best ideas come straight from the players mouths.
0: Right, right. No, I, I, I mean, I, I definitely agree with you. I do know that there's a certain subset of players who'd be like, no, no, that's not fair. Because we've already categorized these things as being able to do X, Y, Z. And you're adding, you know, T and T and Q onto that. You know, that you can't do that. Right.
2: Well, I mean, the fact that you've memorized the monster manual means that I have to make modifications, so There
0: you go. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: you have to keep people on their toes so a big portion of this book is all about like kind of uh, at least and at least in the beginning you know we've got all these people who have like they're the few survivors in New York City and they've got this whole city um at their disposal and they're just like printing parody magazines and whatever um but i'm curious like do you think that there is space in a DD game to kind of have like i don't know like, some, some kind of an apocalypse on, like, a on a major scale and kind of explore what that means? Or, I don't know, what do you think?
2: Oh, yes, certainly. Especially, like, if you travel from a very prominently known, like, populated area and you're like, okay, so we're going to go explore over here and you get to somewhere, like, I don't know, just Miss Star for example, and, like, you're expecting all this stuff because you've seen the adventurers' um, logs from before, all the explorers, and you get there and you're like,
1: this place is empty.
2: Where is everybody? I mean, much yeah. like much like Cholt, right? So that happened in Cholt with all of, like the lost cities and everything. And you're just like, We were pretty sure there was an advanced civilization here. So we need to sort out what's happened so that we don't become this. Right. Yeah. So so like there's definitely like a lot of room for that lost civilization. You're the only people here now. Um, kind of mystery and kind of horror type thing, like, oh god, if they all died, like what's lurking here?
0: Right. What chance do we have necessarily? Right.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so I, I and I, I like that. And then like um you know, you get a, b- a bit of feel of that too in um Eberron where it wasn't like a full-scale apocalypse, but you know, the entire Mornland definitely has that feel of <laughs> something really awful terrible happened here. What yeah. exactly? So actually, That's uh, a great question.
0: Um <laughs> uh, so I mean, uh you bring up again, uh because of uh you're talking about, you know, uh official D&D settings and you're you know deeply involved in Adventurers League, what kind of leeway do you feel um, you have to work with when you're working in this kind of very, you know, these official settings, you know? I mean, you uh,
2: have ton- tons of leeway. I mean, they're they they're the building blocks that you have. But, I mean, you can take all of this lore and everything and then you can... I mean, it's still your world. its They created it and they handed the baby to you. It's your baby now. Like, you can move as far in the future as you want or you can go back and just completely alter the timeline if you want to be like... Uh, when when the morning happened, it wiped out the entirety of the planet except for twelve people in Sharn. Mm-hmm. You can do that, right? Um, you know, obviously, home home play. You can't do that in an organized play campaign. Sure. Um, but the organized play campaign uh, moderators can. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think themes like that are definitely interesting to explore in worlds where like everyone has this preconceived notion of what's going to happen to kind of hop all over and be like, well, here's the future that you expected. And, um, obviously between now and then something else has happened that you didn't expect. So let's, let's explore that. Mm -hmm. Um, and you got, you got a lot of opportunities for that too, especially with those being such magic heavy worlds. Like you time travel forward because you're expecting this and you get there and, um, it's 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 not at all like that um
0: yeah right and then reverse engineering like, what is the divergence point what can we do to, to stop this bring this on if it's something they like you know whatever i'm not saying you know whatever uh, that yeah
2: might, that's yeah. a that's a that's a cool concept that was explored pretty well uh the umbrella academy mm-hmm. sorry for anyone who hasn't seen season one <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, we know we're we're all about uh, no no you know anything that exists for more than a week is is uh, fair fair game in here. <laughs> so yeah, spoiler I mean, at culture the, at, at,
2: at this point, everyone's probably seen season one at least. Right,
0: right. So spoiler culture is not something we have any truck with here. So no problem. <laughs> um, so um, again, this is sort of um, I guess we talked about it's what kind of you're, you're again you're very versed in D and D. Would you use uh, invaders from Rigel? Um, in a DD and d game would you try to use some other game system what 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 do you think is the most fitting thing if you I want would to-
2: I would not use this in in like a straight D&D you could use this in like um you know using the D&D system um mm-hmm. there's many variants like um like espergenesis is you know D&D in space mm-hmm. um, fifth edition Um, You could certainly use this there, in like all the planets that they have in Esper Genesis, one of them all of a sudden found themselves all turned to, you know, mechanics, and that would be actually, that would actually be great, because some of the classes there are very much like, you know, mechanics and stuff, you're like a hacker or whatever, so you get to this planet and everyone's all of a sudden some sort of robot, and you're like, we have to know more. We can weaponize this.
1: Right. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> your, hacker, your hackers are now the surgeons. Right, right. Yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, surgeons so like, so, or, or the
1: therapists. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah or the th- <laughs> Oh, God, yeah, definitely. So, like, th- it's definitely, like, a, you know, material that could be used in, you know, modern modern games. So, like, you could use it in a 5th in a edition-based game or um, in really any other sci-fi-based um, RPG. Like, you could easily set something like this in, in a Star Trek game. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this is pretty much like the very basis of Star Trek. Something bad has happened on a planet. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> how do we fix it? Right, right. Or, or should we just walk away and pretend we didn't see it? <laughs> right,
1: right. Now, Ginny, I don't know how much uh, sci-fi peanut butter you like to get in your fantasy chocolate, but how, how do you feel about a spaceship landing in your D&D world or your D&D characters finding a laser gun?
2: Well, uh, there's, uh, there's, there is indeed very much a, uh, spaceship in, um, Rime of the Frostmaiden, so, uh, you know, the worlds do, do collide, uh, spaceship being more like spelljammery, so you can definitely shove stuff like that in there, um, I love a good Reese's peanut butter cup in my in my D and D, because it's it definitely it's it's a it's a genre that I'm you know pretty familiar with. So uh, we want to throw some some spacefaring races in there who come from a totally different place, and that makes for excellent interactions because like you're talking two different languages, you encounter these people, and you think you're getting on, and it turns out like you're wildly insulting them, and they're about to enslave you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, that's, that's how we get the, the GIF. Uh, you encounter this spacefaring hippopotamus, and you're like, right. is everybody seeing this?
0: I mean, that's one of the fun things of D&D in general, right? I mean, is, um, or, or Star Trek for that matter. I mean, it's, it's reductionist, but it is fun to have these species then be representative of cultures and having the collision of cultures. And, and, mm-hmm. and what can be, is it going to be conflict? Is it going to be diplomacy? Is it going to be a little bit of both? And yeah. um, obviously in D and D a lot of times it defaults to conflict, but I think that's just, you know, because in the nature you're here that you're there to play a game, you know, so
2: yeah, the, nat- the the nature of d d does tend a bit towards um, conquering whatever you encounter, but there, there's definitely more and more people um, nowadays going for like the less everything's a conflict, you know, more than the, the more role play. We're going to get into it. We're going to build out the world. We've encountered something really weird. How can mm. we fol- fold it in?
1: Mm. Yeah. Instead of like, oh, we've encountered something weird. Roll initiative. Right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kill it. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that I, thing
1: isn't like us. Kill it quick.
2: I wrote a. I I wrote an epic. Um, so that's a multi-table interactive event, and we've actually been running it. Um, we did three runs of it for this this weekend, the Baldwin Games D and D sponsored virtual weekends, and um, there's an encounter uh, where a table like there's these owlbears stealing honey, and they're like, we know we know we're supposed to fight them, but we're gonna become. Um, Albert psychologist here <laughs> <laughs> and we're gonna um awaken them and 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 figure out like why are they doing this and terrorizing this town and come up with a, a solution for everybody and i'm just like i love it <laughs> <laughs> so uh so yeah, so i mean there's definitely you know room for n- newer newer play styles and bringing in things that are unexpected like all of a sudden, a whole a whole race in um, the Forgotten Realms gets turned into mechanized creatures and they pretty much become Warforged, which aren't a thing in the Forgotten Realms, but all of a sudden it just is. And you're like, okay, um, they're obviously sentient beings, so we're going to treat them with respect, but... Um,
1: right. Sure. Tieflings and Dragonborn weren't a thing in Forgotten Realms until they suddenly were, mm-hmm. so <laughs> why can't you do the same thing with Warforged? Mm-hmm.
2: yeah. I mean, and you can you can bring those in to any extent of them being um, normal or abnormal and how your players interact with them. So, like, you know, you could very much bring them in as, like, a, an alien race. Mm-hmm. They've come from another plane. Well, they, right, right. they actually literally have come from another plane.
0: <laughs> now, uh, you know, modern D&D uh, has so many, like, really sort of interesting options. Do you think, though, that at a certain point it's diminishing returns because... Um, when everything is kind of exotic then nothing becomes exotic anymore you know or is it just like no this is this is this is the way people really love to play now and this is you know and, you know, this uh, is what- you know I,
2: I think I think a lot of that's gonna depend on the, the audience for some people like too much really does just become too much like they want um a, a bit more of that we're just going to hold to kind of classic Tolkien fantasy. Anything beyond that gets like a bit too much to kind of comprehend on how do we fit that into our Tolkien fantasy view. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there are, are definitely those other players who are like, make it weirder.
0: Right, right. More then, squid,
2: more squids.
0: Right, right. <laughs> and so one thing that we've discovered through this project, although that most of the fiction is sort of human-centric, there's not a lot of elves and stuff like that. Nonetheless, a lot of this fiction is a lot weirder than the actual Tolkien fiction that people tend to think is the baseline mm-hmm. for D&D. Yeah. Um, and certainly this book is quite weird, right? In yeah, its own
2: Yeah, uh, it jumps right into weird. <laughs> right.
0: So, although again, the baseline is not necessarily the baseline that any of us like love, which is again, sort of mid 20th century, you know, white technocratic males, but, um, but it is a baseline to operate from.
2: Yeah. You, you, yeah. you go into it with the understanding of when it was written and like, while it's not it doesn't, you know, eliminate the flaws in it. It, it makes them a lot more palatable, hmm.
1: certainly. It does, but I will say, after this is episode ninety, I'm starting to get some real fatigue on on like these, like the straight white male take on all of this. Um, I, I I love this project, but this this is starting. This aspect of it is starting to fatigue me a bit.
2: Yeah, I mean, and and. and Looking at a lot of the authors on the appendix and list, I'm hoping that some of them have a bit more of a modernistic view on gender and race than others. Obviously, there are some on here that we know are uh, incredibly, truly awful. uh, Lovecraft. (laughs) Oh
1: yeah, Yeah. big, 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 big problems with Lovecraft. Yeah, Yeah. I, I I love his work, and he was not—he wasn't racist for his time. He was straight up racist. racist in his time.
2: Yeah, and and a lot of it you have to separate the work from from the author and like the the worlds he created are great and all. We just need to be a little bit more you know modern about a- application of concepts like gender and and, and race. Mm-hmm.
1: And my thing about separating the art from the artist, I really feel like that's something that how how much a person can do that I feel like is a very personal question. Mm-hmm. You know, because as a white man it is much easier for me to separate the art from the artist when I'm reading Lovecraft because there is some horrible racism there, but I could imagine like if I were a black person and I was reading Lovecraft. It would be being more like,
2: difficult.
1: Yeah. I'm like, you know, awesome, Jeff. I'm glad you can separate the art from the artist, but like, I don't want to read this garbage. Right. And I'm like, cool. I get it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm not trying to convince you otherwise. Right, yeah. Right.
2: And, and on, you know, on the same vein, like I'm sure like the, the, uh, Over sexism in here definitely probably resonated differently with me than it would with either of you but uh, i mean it was 100 it was at least like definitely obvious that it's a product of its time in the in the 30s or even the 60s like women were meant to be subservient you know get in the kitchen be pretty have babies be quiet and like all of that definitely shines through um but but then in the end kind of like they do get a little bit of begrudging respect, at least, for Gloria on, like, uh, the old girl saved our neck a few times.
0: Right, right.
1: Sure. What's interesting, though, is on, on the on the queer front, though, because, you know, I'm gay and, um, and Hoy is not. And when we read fiction that has some, like, occasional queer content, it's usually not, like, the most, um, what is the word? It's not the most enlightened mm-hmm. yeah. um, material. But, like... Even so, I'm usually just excited that like even anything remotely queer has shown up. Mm -hmm. So I feel like Hoy is actually probably more like bothered by the by the by the like stuff that's like queerly, like clearly homophobic at times, where I'm just like happy that there's any gay content at all.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. I used to work at a video store in the West Village, and if there was any gay content, people would be happy to watch the movie, even though (laughs) again, as you say, some of it was pretty regressive. Um, Yeah.
2: I definitely have like, you know, queer as well, but definitely have like mixed opinions on like some of the older like queer content where they're like trying to inject it in there. But you're like, okay, so yeah, there's, there's, there, there's queer person in here, but there is this much queer and this much homophobia. Right. So- oh, sure.
1: Yeah. 100%. Mm-hmm. So- totally, totally, totally. Right. right. So does it um, even really t- count? It's still exciting for me though, like reading like an old Fafford and Gray Master st- story and then finding like the two lesbian thieves. And I was like, oh, what? <laughs> you yeah, have lesbian thieves in Linkmar?" And I just get so excited right.
2: about that. Well, <laughs> I think I'm a little excited too, but that's like very pale in comparison to like my genuine excitement for like, the, the the good queer content the, yeah. the lgbt content and like the new she-ra like i was just, yeah. like crying little happy 100. gay tears right right 100,
0: right 100
1: 100 100
0: right and it, it, it's interesting um because we've read two other fletcher pratt books in this um project of ours uh which were both very difficult to read i, I would say it was fair to say right jeff um yes and very
1: different than this because yeah. i mean they both relied heavily on sexual assault as like a way that magic is generated right
0: uh i mean not in any sort of obvious stupid advocacy way but but there was no. there the world was very but what was clear that Fletcher pratt was very aware of these things in the understanding that you had in the 1940s and 50s and those were a little later than the, this book that was written um and yeah also yeah, like, had some queer characters also in the in the uh well the unicorn at least was um, it that or was it blue
1: star where we had the did, wh- wh- where did we have the the ship's captain who had his like little boy toy that
0: was a uh, blue star but in um, was blue star. there was yeah. one of the mercenary captains had was was gay i think in um in the well of the unicorn that's and,
1: right and but, i missed that and you and Strix both caught it and, and somehow I, I, that was the situation where right, i didn't even right,
0: right. I, and I one, one of the princes became bi after being exposed to the well of the unicorn some craziness like that <laughs> that's
1: right yeah, yeah. Right. Well, <laughs> so- <laughs>
2: well is that it's called the well of the unicorn there <laughs> Yeah, of course it's, it's going it, to make you buy. It's a bit, it's a, <laughs> it's, it's a bit on the nose, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right,
0: right. Um, But my point being that I think that Fletcher Pratt uh, was part of this sort of like artsy scene in in New York, and he would have known, you know, people, you know known gay yeah. people but okay. we just don't
2: talk about
0: them exactly <laughs> yeah. or the way that so they it's not been talking surprising it. yeah.
1: that the people who usually bring them up tend to be like fletcher pratt and fritz Leiber, who are both like people who lived in new york and traveled in arts artsy circles and things like that right
0: right it might have been talking about in a coded way or this might have been yeah. talked about in sort of a superficial way like oh i know a gay person he's okay they're like this though right yeah but but that, that, that they did exist right and then yeah. sure. it, it
2: is nice to at least acknowledge their existence even if you simultaneously turn around and be like but let me tell you why they're awful but you're like but they did exist okay cool Right. we, we <laughs> do have gay people in your world
1: right <laughs> we exist it's right. true um, I love yes. existing <laughs> <It's> so, <nice. laughs> so Jenny we are running out of time is there are there any kind of final thoughts about invaders from Rangel that we didn't get a chance to get to that you would like to bring up
2: um God, no. Um, If you if you if you have time and you want to read a fairly short kind of out there story that's influenced it, though, I would say this is probably a good one to pick up as far as like being grossly offensive. It's not. But it is like it it is definitely interesting and a product of its time. So um, and it's a short read. So out of all the ones on the list, I'd say um, if someone wants to just see how weird some of these books get, this wouldn't be a bad one.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) perfect excellent summary so uh, Jenny are there any projects you're working on that you want people to know about
2: I host a weekly uh, Twitch show on my uh, channel it's just twitch.tv slash Jenny Loveday it's G-I-N-N-Y and on that, it's called the Designer's Den. A chat with a different designer each week about something they're working on, something they created, something they just love by somebody else. Um, kind of walk through that, and then just talk a lot about like their different design philosophy, um, whether that be like uh, a writer. Or um, I recently talked with um, an up and coming like map maker cartographer because creating art to go with fantasy is like a whole thing in itself and so that's pretty cool um also do the the D roundtable podcast with Paige lightman um on an unknown basis we record when we record and theoretically it comes out every other week but um you can check our we're part of the tome show network and you can see that we don't hold to that very well <laughs> Um, but we cover all kinds of topics there. Um, and it doesn't really matter what the topic is. We can twist it around to, um, social topics and LGBT, um, no matter what we actually started talking about. So if you like that kind of thing, thing, uh, tune into that. And then, um, I actually don't have any writing projects that I'm working on right now. I'm trying to put myself through my MBA, but, um, doing a bunch of online D&D, the monthly events with Baldwin Games. If you want to play some games with me, that's a great w- place to find me. And um, yeah, my epic is making the circles right now. So if you want to um, die.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: but, in a fun, but
2: in a fun way, if you want your character to die. Sorry, I should say you you won't die. Your character will. <laughs> 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 then Then come play that. Um, but yeah, no, thank you both so much for having me on. This has been yeah. a, a delight. <laughs> I always love a chance to order uh, a book from Thrift Books that smells like it's from the 60s.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, totally. my, my bookshelf smells very weird. That old,
2: that old <laughs> book smell, you're like, oh, yes, this has been in a library somewhere for God knows how long. Right,
0: right. It's like, there's always that risk that it was like a, from a pipe smoker's house, too, when you order something old.
2: It's hard to tell, though, because the pages are like naturally yellow, so you're right. like...
0: yep yep there you go
1: <laughs> all right and hoy how can folks find us
0: right uh if you want to give us some feedback please do send us an email at appendix club at gmail.com we're also on twitter at, at appendix underscore n um are we still on facebook jeff i can't remember
1: um i am not on facebook yeah. so i i recently deleted my facebook but i don't know if that means i don't know what that means actually all right well um, look
0: for us on twitter and email us <laughs> it,
2: it, it. If you were the owner of the page and you deleted your Facebook entirely, not just deactivated it, then the page is gone. All
1: right. Okay. We are not on Facebook. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm glad I can clear this up for you. There you go. <laughs>
0: so email us or look for us on Twitter. Uh, if you like us, please do rate us and review us on your Padcatcher of Choice. It does people, help people find us. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? Yes,
1: if you would like to show us some support, we would really appreciate that. Please head on over to patreon.com slash club. Prior to our episodes with our special guests, we meet up with our patrons and they can chat about the books with us. And this afternoon, Adam Styers joined us for that conversation, and that was really fun. I would also like to give a shout out to a handful of our other patrons. Thank you to Andy Action, Robbie Fiodo, Brandon Cruz, Matt Hildebrand. Christopher Murray, Sean Birch, Ethan Schoonover, Daniel Bishop, James Hansen. We really appreciate your support. And we're also thinking of other ways that we might be able to um, give additional benefits for things that patrons can do. Um, so keep keep an eye out um, um, for further updates on that. Uh, we wanna have you more involved in potentially helping us curate the kind of um, the kind of works we're reading and discussing on the show. So more on that to come. Um, but otherwise, Jenny, thank you. This has been a blast. Oh, so much
2: yeah, fun! Yeah, no, absolutely. And you can find me on all of the internet things except YouTube. Just under my name, Jenny Loveday. I'm still fighting with YouTube.
0: Okay, well, <laughs> all right, there you go. Sounds good. Fight the good fight.
1: Hey, <laughs>
2: <laughs> so right, see
0: all you right. in the stacks.
1: Read on. The library is closed.